Okay, so I would love to claim that I brilliantly scheduled today's sermon to go with class, but it was a complete accident. Uh, today's class is talking to kids about heaven, hell, places kind of questions. Um, so we get to revisit today's lesson and see if you're paying attention at all. Um, it's tricky for a handful of reasons, one being kids are so very literal uh, I remember Lucas asking me about when we go up to heaven, will we run into planes on the way up? Like, is there air traffic control for the resurrection or something? I don't know. He was very concerned about that at one point in life. Um, don't know where he got that one, but sure. Uh, and I remember as a kid finding heaven in particular to be a very frightening concept because it involved the idea of, of endlessness. Mm -hmm. And that was a very scary thing to me, of, of things that don't have boundaries or end, of like you could just walk forever and the sidewalk just keeps going and you'll, you'll never get to the other end. There is another end and then it never, you never run out of time. So what is this? You know, is, the literal brain of young Ben was uh, very troubled by, by those ideas. Um, and evidently, people always have been, uh, because the Bible just keeps throwing metaphors at it, as we saw this morning. I mean, literally in the same sermon, Jesus will say, uh, the meek will inherit the earth, and then lay not for yourselves treasures on earth, but in heaven. Like, okay, well, how, how are both of those things in the same paragraph? And yet, uh, both of them convey something Jesus wanted you to know. Um, I, I had a friend who was teaching that passage in the Sermon on the Mount, the meek will inherit the earth. And he says, obviously that means heaven. And I said, you understand that earth is like the opposite word. It would be like if, if God said black and you said, obviously it means white. You know, it's, it's weird that Jesus used the word earth there. And then you have these other set of passages that say both or neither and say new heaven and new earth and it's Jerusalem. And did you catch this in uh, Revelation 21? Uh, new heaven and new earth in John's vision comes down out of heaven. So what? <laughs> you know, you're trying to map that out. It's a strange image if they're all the same thing or not. So the Bible just kind of keeps throwing metaphors at it. Um, so we're going to struggle with it, and then religious people are going to fight about it. Like everybody's got their own little version of it, their own little chart. Um, one of, my, one of my favorite things about the Church of Christ, got to tell you, is um, our, what's called eschatology, doesn't come with charts. Like we, you'll, you'll never see Mark at the front of the class saying, now here is the rapture chart, and here's, you know, and, and there, here's where the thousand year goes. And the, uh, the technical term is, is amillennial or amillennial, um, which means no charts. Uh, and it's literally from Latin meaning no charts. Uh, oddly enough, early in Churches of Christ, we were deeply millennial, uh, post-millennial or pre-millennial, and uh, in the 1800s fought over it quite a lot and had profound opinions about it. And then in the 20th century said, eh, no, maybe we could simplify that. And where a lot of the evangelical and Protestant world went like deeper into the charts, the Churches of Christ said, yeah, I think, I think we're good. We don't, we don't need more charts. And we just kind of stopped. So uh, bad news is it means I don't have a chart to show you. Like I, now I have to like, well, now what? What do we believe? Um, 
but it's a little more open-ended, and that's, that's good news, because that means you can encompass everything the Bible says. You don't have to pick your favorite passage and say, well, that's the one we, we do at our church, you know. Yeah. I've always, uh, growing up from a place with heavy use of, of charts, I've always been curious, when we don't use the charts, does that change anything about how we are supposed to live our lives? And I don't yeah. know if there, I, do you know if there's an actual reason that, Besides the fact of studying and to show yourself approved and to understand, yeah. is there any actual change that we would have, an applicable change in our daily lives of how we might live at our church? If you think the charts, as we call them, um, includes signs of the times, like that there will be momentous political world events that mean X, then you're, the way you watch the news changes, mm-hmm. I think. That's, that's the primary thing. You become very concerned with world events and very speculative about them even. Mm-hmm. Um, teaching my online class for the Ukrainians uh, last month, we were talking, and, and, and they have the same issue we do, that you know Russia invades, and then you have a, a group of religious Ukrainians out there saying this is the end of the world, and you know, the Antichrist is Putin, and like, you know, has figured it all out and mapped it out. Um, and every so often, you know, that somebody publishes that book and says, here it is. And it, in my mind, it makes us wrong a lot because I, I still have somewhere Tim LaHaye's book that has the map. shows you right where the Soviet Union is going to invade. I mean, it's, it's right there in the book and uh, not even a Soviet Union anymore. So now I don't know. Right. So but in terms of practicality, I think it, it makes you a little less anxious to do away with the charts, that you're not trying to map out onto world events things that I suspect God didn't intend to communicate anyway. Um, the the counter to that would be, does it make us so we never think about it? That would be bad. If we just never concerned ourselves with Christ is coming back, we still believe that. Uh, there is an age to come, we still believe that. Uh, that. That would be the challenge, that you can be so relaxed about it, you have never thought about it. And that's no good. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah. So, terminology then that's going to be common, uh, earth, heaven, new heaven, new earth, hell, uh, would be the terms that might come up in a conversation. Um, hell's the only one we haven't talked about in our sermon series, um, except to say that death gets thrown into it. Last week we mentioned that. Um, so, based on three weeks of sermons, how does Ben define Earth? I think I said it about ten times this morning, but huh? No, what? Huh? No, you mouthed off. You got to repeat it now. Where we are is exactly right. Here, Earth is just in my mind the biblical word for here. We want to know where is here and where is there, right? Here is what we call Earth. You did say the edges. The edges. Nobody said, does that make it flat? And it's right. <laughs> yep. Here there be dragons is what I wanted to say this morning. But yeah. Um, yeah. I, I am in the process of combining this sermon series with some material for my dissertation and trying to get a book published on like how Christians see the, the big picture of the universe. And one section I'm trying to decide do I want to talk about flat earth people or can I just leave them out? Is that, uh, I don't know. Anyway, no, I, uh, Lucas and Calvin both went through phases where place names and categories were difficult. You know, they'd say, um, have we left Ada yet? Yes. 
so are we in Oklahoma now? It's like, well, we, we were in Oklahoma. No, we were in Ada. Well, the, the, and also, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if Earth is the place where we live, if it's here, heaven is? A place where God lives. Yeah, that's it. Uh, if you want to get in, next week we're going to talk about spirits and beings of other sorts. And if you, I don't think he's by himself there. Uh, but the big thing is that's where he is. Uh, and that's the idea. New heaven and new earth, based on this morning's sermon, place where we hope to live with God. Yeah, I mean, call it, put, put it wherever you need to on your atlas. It's, uh, the, the concept is God and man together. So sometimes we say we're going to heaven, by which we mean we're going to be with God. And sometimes we say Christ is coming back, by which we mean God is coming to be with us. And then sometimes the Bible says new heaven and new earth, by which it means <laughs> the same thing, and just different ways of expressing the same point. It's about who's there, not the geography. That's, that's the key. Uh, and if, if anything, you can communicate to your kids um, this point, even talking to some pretty senior Christians about their view of heaven and stuff like that, they really get fixated on all the wrong details. To me, it's about who's there. In fact, if I, if I could replace all of our terminology, I would just stop using any of these words and say, I'm, I wrote an article once that was titled, I'm not going to heaven. And the point of it was, I'm not going to heaven, I'm going to God. Heaven happens to be where God is, right? <laughs> just the, I'm going to be with God is the point. Uh, the geography doesn't matter that much. If whatever we call that is the place where we are with God, mm-hmm. how would, would we then define hell? Mm-hmm. Yeah, place where a person could be without God. Although, yeah, I guess God's with us in heaven, on earth right now. In, in a different way. God lives in heaven, so yeah. that like, hell to be on earth. Yeah, be oh, on earth. Utter, utterly without God, like yeah. fully. Yeah, right, right. And, and, you know, when we even use that expression, hell on earth, what we're trying to say is, like, it seems like God abandoned this little place for this moment in time. You know, it's, we're getting that sense of it. <laughs> what was that? Texas. Texas, that's right. Recap today's sermon. I'm going to show you about a five-minute little video from the Bible Project, not to be confused with the Gospel Project, the Bible Project people, where they try to do their, their version of new heaven and new earth. And I'm not saying you got to buy everything they're selling. But the graphics are nice, and I, I thought it was... Interesting and and good summary. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying. Why is it not showing the actual video? There we go. God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting, is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy, because the union of... Sorry, the video is being choppy. Heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about about how they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely
completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwell together perfectly, then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out. The guy flipping off God cracks me up. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah. The, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right, so we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus, and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple, he's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more.
heaven on earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. So I think that's a pretty good description. I think the key on all of those ideas is not to hang your hat on one of them, because any one of them by themselves mm -hmm. actually becomes misleading. So he's real big on, well, we don't, we're not doing this go to heaven thing. And I'm like, okay, yeah. It, you can, it can be dangerous when you just keep acting like nothing here matters and we're going somewhere else. At the same time, yeah, I am. I am going somewhere else. <laughs> and that language is in the Bible. And I, I don't, I don't want to get rid of that either. Um, both of those uh, images are how God describes it. And so just live with both of them uh, would be my suggestion. And do so again with some humility. Um, so two concepts. Heaven in Scripture is just the name of the place where God is. Earth is just the name of the place where we are. The end of our story is that God and humans will be together in the same place. What do you call that? Sometimes we'll call this going to heaven because we're going to God's place. Sometimes we'll call it a new heaven and a new earth because it is a new place for God and us to be together. Um, we can imagine and guess a lot of things about this new world, but the most important thing is that we'll be with God. Really want to emphasize who and not where. That's the key. Uh, that's, the, that's the part that they say, yeah, this is the story. The story of the Bible is God was with us, sin separated us, Christ makes it possible to be with him again. That's the story. Um, people get hung up. You can go overboard on the leave here and go to heaven side of things. You can also get overboard like our Jehovah's Witness friends who think it's basically just going to be like Ada. and you're gonna, Heaven and earth like right here. Uh, nothing changes almost. Uh, extremes in all directions. All of those are fixated on geography instead of you're going to be with your God. That's the key. Um, what then might we say about that other place that I haven't talked about, uh, hell? Um, my view of hell has been shaped a lot by uh, C.S. Lewis, um, who said that there are people who don't want to be with God. Um, how did he word it? There are people who refuse to say, thy will be done, and in the end, God will say to them, Thy will be done. That they get what they want in a sense. They did not want to be with God, and God's going to say, "Okay, then you're not." Um, that's again another thing pictured in many different ways. Okay, so and it's it's described as like a lake of fire because it would obviously be miserable to be without God. It's also described as outer darkness. Can you see the problem? Usually, fire is pretty bright. If you have a lake of fire, it should be really bright, but it's dark. And there's a worm that dieth not, is a phrase that Jesus uses. What is a worm doing in a lake of fire in the dark? I don't know. It's just all different metaphors <laughs> to describe a miserable kind of subhuman existence of 
what if you got your wish and you said, I don't want God, and he said, okay. What would that even be like? Well, I've never lived a day in my life without some blessing from God in it. So it's hard to, in some ways, hard to imagine something where I'm with God all the time. It's hard to imagine not being with God ever. I've never seen anything like that. So the Bible just piles up metaphor on metaphor on metaphor. Um, Hell is the word we typically use to describe that. It's the ultimate consequence of sin. Again, I don't think we have to scare children with hell. It's scary enough. I mean, just just that much, right? The idea that um, there is an alternative to being with God, that he would allow that. Um, there are a lot, because of how unpleasant the doctrine of hell is to all of us, it makes all of us a little queasy. Uh, there's lots of alternative renditions in Christian history of, well, maybe it's like this or maybe it's like that. But that, I think, is the key idea that a kid could probably get, is that if you don't want to be with God, and in your life you make the choices that says, I don't want to do what God wants, in the end, he will allow you to have exactly that. God's worst punishment for anybody in the Bible is letting them have what they asked for. In the book of Judges, there's a scene where God says, you you really seem to like idols, so I'm going to leave, and your idols can take care of you. It goes horribly, as you might guess. Right? The worst thing God can do is to say, okay, you get what you want. That would be hell. Ben's two cents, anyway. In that way of thinking of it, Lewis would also say, hell is locked from the inside. Meaning, like, you chose to be there. Your pride couldn't stand to be with God. So if you read Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, there's literally a bus that takes people from hell up to heaven, and they can go up anytime they want. Lewis also believes in purgatory, so that's the bus. Anyway, you can, you can get on a bus and go from hell to heaven anytime you want, and people won't get off the bus. Like, no, I like it better down here. <laughs> in his mind, you know, that, that's just how stubborn and rebellious humans are. But it's, it's not like... God's locking us up, throwing away the key. It's like we wouldn't want out anyway. We're just that stubborn. Uh, There again, we've reached the edge of the map, and that's very, very speculative. And Lewis would be the first to say, uh, this is a work of fiction. So uh, it was just him daydreaming about what it might be like. But it's interesting. Thoughts or questions? Is any of that useful for talking to kids? Or adults. Depends <laughs> yeah. on the kid. Uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of abstractness that a certain age of child yeah. would be counterproductive, mm-hmm. even if it was well articulated. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for, well, I, I would say three. My three children probably wouldn't understand the difference between the physical geography and the metaphysical attributes of yeah. heaven mm-hmm. and hell yeah. and, and earth. Uh, yeah. whether it's new or not. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, even if I were to work out the wording, um, it probably wouldn't go well. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is one of those things that we probably shouldn't lead with in children's yeah. <laughs> class. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the personal touch helps, and I agree that the, the metaphysics, I'm going to get lost in the weeds in a hurry. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm working on this little book, and I, I feel that, like, personally. I'm like, oh, what, what is happening on this page? Um, but the personal part, kids, so my kids, when they're saying, are we in 
Ada yet, or are we in Oklahoma yet, like not getting geography, at the same time, keenly aware of where people belonged. Mm -hmm. So they knew what mom and dad's house was, and they knew what Grammy and grandpa's house was, and they knew where, like, where people are. No idea where Shawnee is, mm -hmm. but where Papa is, like they would get. So again, I think that then conveys really well, okay, I, I don't know if I can communicate to you the metaphysics of heaven and earth, uh, the place where God is, the place where we are, the place where God isn't. You know, those kind of things may, may actually work better than the things we're trying to explain. Something we do with the, the third grade geography curriculum is that we, we create a map of things known. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and we start with, with, like, draw your bedroom. And hmm. they'll draw that. Draw your house. And then draw your city. And then eventually they'll get that you could be in Ada and in Oklahoma at the same time. But that typically not until about fifth grade or so. Yeah. When it comes to heaven and earth, I think that's why adults are so fixated on the where yeah. instead of the who, because heaven is a census, not a map. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's who is there, yeah. not where is there. Yeah. And uh, so in the geography curriculums, starting in ninth grade and 10th grade, we start to talk about human environment interaction in the absence of physical resources. Hmm. And, but only until then, you know, you have to have a teenager to at least acknowledge things can be real, even if they can't be measured. It's real science. <laughs> um, and so with, with heaven and hell, I think it would be wise to approach it of right now it's a place. But then you're going to realize it's a census. Yeah. It's uh, eventually, a if I yeah. do this well enough and we call it spiraled curriculum to where it's the same topics, much more deep. Yeah. It's post-hauling, essentially. Uh, you never get off the fence post. You just dig deeper. Um, and I, I think for me, especially growing up in the Baptist church, that hell is eternal conscious torture, that you have actively chosen, and it peels your skin off day by day, and you wake up every day, and you choose it again, probably not a good lead. Yeah, that's a hard that's a hard sales pitch for for anybody. Yeah, yeah for for kids even to get. And, yeah, and it, it, it the the concepts of heaven and hell um, are perfect opportunities to show our children that we're still learning and struggling with something, but yeah. we're making the effort. Yeah, mm -hmm. that might be the lesson. Yeah, that even you know after how many graduate degrees, what? it's still slippery. So literally, what led to this little project I'm working on was. Uh, I was taking an Old Testament theology class and, and I, in the doctoral program. Like, this is the end of the road for me. And the guy says, uh, you know, here are the topics. And I didn't really care for any of the topics. So I just pointed to one, and it was the topic was sacred spaces. And I was supposed to talk about heaven, earth, and space, and whatever. Oh, okay, sure. Come to find out, it was the professor's dissertation topic. Okay. <laughs> so me, knowing nothing, writing a paper on this guy's area of expertise. Literally, he had a book that was coming out, now has been published, on this topic. He is the world's leading expert on that niche topic. Uh, so Ben failed that paper. Sure. <laughs> and then uh, it was the class was being co-taught, and the other professor comes and says, I've talked to Blake uh, Hearson, and uh, what we're going to do is we're going to have you rewrite the paper, but this time I'm going to grade it, not him, <laughs> and we'll see how you do. And I did much better the second time, actually. But yeah, it was something where I, 
I thought I'm an expert, and turns out I nothing. Yeah, uh, about this area of discussion, and then got really interested in it myself, and started digging. It's like I was kind of curious about this. Does that include the promised land idea, like the physical wild or physical promised land? He talks about that a little bit in his book. He he described it that Israel thought of the world as having phone booths, where like there's a place where you could go and communicate with God if you were in that place. Or to modernize it, there there are places that had better Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. and so the temple had like perfect Wi-Fi. Like you could really communicate with heaven that way. And then Christ claims, I don't want to use the word replace, but to perfect that. That like through Christ, you have perfect reception, right? perfect communication with that other world. Um, I didn't answer your question at all. Okay, Mark has a new album out, and there's a song called Promised Land, but the line is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think the book of Hebrews makes a pretty good argument that like everything is perfected in Christ. So he's our perfect Sabbath rest. He's our perfect promised land. He's our perfect, you know, he, the person, is replacing the shadowy concrete things. But again, that word replacement gets me in trouble with people. So, yeah. I think of it along those lines uh, of the people. And if you think about we can use Thanksgiving as an example. Mm-hmm. Where is Thanksgiving? Yeah. Well, it's wherever you have Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it might be different for different people that you still have it. And I wonder, this is one of those edge of the map ideas. Uh, I know that it says that we'll be there together, but will we see the exact same thing together? <laughs> is heaven something different? Mm-hmm. I yeah. see, when I because they said we're, there's going to be a city. John saw a city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was that a city like with modern structures, with steel and concrete, or was yeah. that adobe structures? And, and, yeah. I mean, <laughs> because yeah. back in the time, that he, we can we can have an idea of what he might have seen. Does that even matter? Yeah. Because there are going to be streets of gold. Well, gold is, uh, I mean, in heaven. I mean, yeah. Anyway, it's just. And then here's the other thing that I just want to throw in there. Uh, well, when we put someone to rest, and now they're in heaven. We tell children, okay, and my daughter and son both ask, is Nana now in heaven? Well, I believe she is. So will I go to get to see her again in heaven? Uh, so we'll meet someplace together and we'll get to recognize each other. How will we recognize her? Because I sure bet Sue doesn't want to be in the body that she was mm. when she left this earth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What a, what a yeah. horrible thing to happen. So... How are we going to recognize people? This yeah. is just another thing that's on the spectrum of we don't have to know that, but we yeah. just know that I want to. And you get you get little glimpses of it yeah. when, so when Jesus is resurrected, you looked right at him and you don't recognize him, uh-huh. and then he says, "Hey," and he goes, "Oh, it's you!" Like then you do know who it is. Yeah. Different, but the same. First John three and two again is, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we shall be like him and see him as he is. Like in fact, it's it's more real. Right. But there's a moment when it's different enough that people look Jesus right in the face and said, who's that? <laughs> so, so, so then if we overlap our you know, spectrums or whatever, dimensions, then why did he go up? Why didn't he just dissolve into the... <laughs> That's on the next slide. Oh, the computer problem. I don't know. <laughs> Bell ringing. Yeah. Yeah. I have a little question. Um, 